Welcome to the Vital Voices podcast, Power to Empower series. 2020 was supposed to be the start of a bold new decade. Instead, unprecedented global crises have radically shifted our reality and have put the life and death consequences of good leadership on display. Time and time again, we've seen that women leaders stand strong in the face of challenges. Women are stepping forward with creativity, compassion, using their courage to encourage others, their bold ideas to embolden communities, and their voices, positions, and power to empower us all. That's why we're celebrating their power, potential, and purpose. In our new book, Vital Voices, 100 Women Using Their Power to Empower, and bringing their stories to life on this podcast. In this series, we're speaking with women leaders about their journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their thoughts on leadership and the path forward. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Today, I'm honored to have the opportunity to sit down virtually, of course, with one of my favorite people, Vital Voices board member and chairman of Universal Filmed Entertainment Group, Dame Donna Langley. As chairman, Donna brings so much of the film and entertainment we see in our movie theaters and increasingly more now today on our TVs to life from Universal Pictures, DreamWorks Animation, Focus Features, Universal Pictures International, and Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. Throughout her illustrious career, Donna has defined what it means to be a woman leader who is truly using her power to empower, and you're about to see how. She's championed emerging filmmakers and content creators, including a number of women, helping them to develop original inclusive storytelling. Her deft leadership has redefined popular culture and pushed for expanding opportunities for women and people of color across the entertainment industry. As we all know, that is desperately needed. And she's made Universal the first major studio to have a department dedicated to progressing diversity and inclusion with production and the workforce. Um, I could list so many more of Donna's extraordinary accomplishments and achievements for hours, but today we're speaking with her really about her journey and her thoughts on art's influence on culture and how she sees the entertainment industry's path forward, um, you know, post-pandemic. Donna, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Elise. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So just to start, um, I think there's so many people out there who are, who are in awe of your leadership, your influence, the path um, that you have taken. But of course your career did not happen overnight. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your journey, your leadership journey and how you got to where you are today? Well, I've been working in the entertainment industry for gosh, over 20 years. And I started at the very bottom as an, in, as an intern and certainly didn't imagine that I would uh, end up where I am today. And I think that's perhaps been part of my journey. I'm constantly pushing myself and challenging myself, uh, you know, to get to that next level and to take that next step on the rung of the ladder. Ambition has been a, a, a big part of it for me um, and figuring out, you know, how to overcome those challenges that may seem overwhelming and get around them and overcome them, you know, to sort of push myself really to get to the next level. What do you think in your, in your youth, um, you know, when you think back to growing up and you grew up in the UK, um, what do you think influenced your path? 
there's a couple of different things I think that uh, that that really defined my my childhood or my upbringing. <clears throat> One of them is I grew up on the Isle of Wight, which is a small island in the south of England, and it is as idyllic as it sounds. <laughs> I grew up in nature. Uh, I had a lot of freedom. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids, and I was able to wander over hills and dales. I spent a lot of time on the beach, and it it was the type of childhood that really, um, you know, sort of enabled me to to foster my imagination. I also grew up in a family of literary nerds. We were always reading books and swapping. Uh, recommendations my my mom and my sister are, are avid readers and so you know i sort of grew up around that storytelling um i'm also adopted i'm half egyptian and half english and i was adopted um late 1960s at a time in the uk where there were a number of uh, immigrant children <laughs> being born um, as a result of an influx of immigrants um you know into the uk around that time and my mom came across a woman who had founded an adoption agency for what they were then called mixed race children. And uh, my mom decided that she wanted to go and meet this woman and therefore ultimately adopted me. That was an interesting uh, upbringing for me. You know, I'm in dark haired in a family of uh, blonde haired, blue eyed uh, <laughs> people. And I grew up in a place where there wasn't a lot of diversity. And so I, I know that shaped a lot of my outlook mm -hmm. on life, um, you know, as, as I was growing up in that environment, you know, um, and I experienced everything from, you know, complete sort of it, it just, uh, you know, some people didn't notice it, but many people did, you know, I my mom was often asked, you know, who the father was, <laughs> like it wasn't my dad, you know, we would all have a big joke about it, but, you know, there was also bullying involved, you know, because I was different and my coloring. So, you know, that sort of up close look at, you know, featureism and those types of things. I, I, I know when I look back on it now and I think, gosh, why, why do I have such an affinity for the you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, and justice work, I, mm -hmm. I really think it can be traced back to those uh, those early days of childhood. Yeah. yeah, it's all these things certainly shape us. And I know I've heard so many times, you know that that you know when you talk about the freedoms that you had to explore and be imaginative, that you know young people, a lot of young people today don't have that. Right? They're overscheduled. They're overprogrammed, and that is so deeply important to just give kids that freedom to explore and to, and to, to, to be bored and, and, and come up with, you know, interesting, you know, crazy out of box ideas, right. Um, and entertain themselves. So it, it is, it is no, no, no surprise that, that, that is the way that you grew up. And certainly I think, you know, Donna, one of the things that I've always really admired about you and your leadership, and, and certainly I think it comes from, your background and having grown up um, is, is that you have this tremendous empathy. And I mean that in like the most powerful way. I think empathy is for a long time been looked at as like, that's kind of a weak word somehow, but yet it is like the most important thing any leader needs to have is to really be able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. And if you haven't had any of that sort of adversity to triumph over, it's, it's harder to do that if you haven't experienced that. So I, 
I would, I would imagine, you know, that, that so much of your leadership skills actually comes from even some of those early influences. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that for sure. Now, so, so going back to your career, was, was there an inflection point at some stage where, you know, you, you really realized I'm, I'm really committed and I can have a huge impact because you are a, you are someone who is in, I think, your position because of, and, and dedicated to your position because of the power that you are able to have in terms of influencing in a positive way, right? Not power for the sake of power, but power for the sake of empowering. So was there an inflection point where you really realized this is how I wanna dedicate myself and, and I can have a real impact? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been a few moments along the way that you know ha- have have acted as as catalysts for a, a pivot, you know, in my career. Uh, I remember very early in my career, a, a powerful agent looking at me and saying, "What are you doing? Why you need to make a plan for yourself and your career and get on with it? You have so much potential." And I, I, rem- I will never forget that conversation. And that was sort of what propelled me to, I think I was an assistant at the time, uh, you know, to, like I was saying earlier, to sort of get on that journey of, okay, how do I ne- get to the next level rather than being intimidated by the challenges in front of me. It's a very competitive landscape. It's a very difficult transition to make. I'm just gonna go get on with it. But I think um, perhaps more profoundly, becoming a mother was, um, was a big pivot moment for me. Um, I, I had my children both over the age of 40 within a couple of years of, of one another. It wasn't easy for me to get pregnant. And, and so, you know, dealing with all of that, as I'm sure many listeners can relate to while also trying to keep your career on, on track, um, you know, it was, a, it was a real accomplishment. But, you know, becoming a mother and becoming a mother at, at that age, um, did give me a wonderful perspective and also a sense of accomplishment. You know, I think if you can do that, you can do anything, right? So um, it, it helped me, I think, have a confidence and gain a perspective that in my role in a big media company that is communicating with millions of people globally through our movies and through the voices of our filmmakers, um, you know, that I have a platform and with that platform comes some responsibility that there is there is a way that you know I can bring the influence that I have and that uh, movies have um, you know to bear to to bring about you know sort of positive change and you know that can be anything on a small level to you know looking at our own culture inside the company and asking questions as to, you know, is it equitable? Is it diverse enough? You know, is it supporting um, the, the, you know, people's uh, ambitions to, you know, to further their careers? You know, do we have enough of these things going on? You know, all the way to, um, you know, using a kind of broader or louder megaphone with the types of movies that, that we choose to make and being able to you know, make a film like Straight Out Compton or support a filmmaker like J- Jordan Peele with Get Out. Um, you know, though I, I see that as obviously business opportunity and imperative, but also cultural opportunity. And, and, and again, that opportunity to 
to you know to really shift culture and and uh, and, pro and provide context for you know some of our most important social issues. Mm. I I couldn't agree more. I think that we have great laws on the books in this country and around the world that protect and advance the rights and opportunities of women and girls and people of all different uh, racial backgrounds. But yet, as we all know, it's, it's the bias, it's, it's culture, it's behavior, it's the way things have always been that actually shape the way things are. And the entertainment industry, arts, culture, it has the opportunity to shift that in such a profound way. And, and I think certainly we've seen that. And as we think about this most recent inauguration, as I walk away from that, it's hard to remember what all those various politicians on that stage said, but I remember every word, you know, that Amanda Gorman uttered. And, you know, part of it is, of course, we love Amanda. She's, she's been part of the Bio Voices Network right. for many years. But I think it's also that art has the ability to touch us in a different way. And I, I couldn't agree more. Have you, have there been moments in your career where you're like, wow, we, that really just shifted the way people see this, or I, I mean, I know I know Straight Outta Compton for you is a huge um, w was a huge focus in terms of that 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 cultural change. Were there other films as well where you really look to them and say that had a real impact? I'm really proud of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, films that we've made for underserved audiences or audiences that the general consensus was, you know, wouldn't show up to a movie theater. So the female audience, as a, for instance, you know, when we made the first Mamma Mia, it came out right around the financial crisis. <clears throat> and I just remember receiving so much, um, you know, feedback, positive feedback from people all over the world about how, uh, you know, positive, that movie had made them feel in a dark time, how, you know, how joyous it was. Um, and, and of course, you know, we we proved a lot of the industry wrong with that film, you know, with it uh, ending up at the box office over $400 million. You know, first of all, nobody thought a movie with ABBA music would do that well. And it was a big fight to get the movie, to get the movie made actually. Um, and I believed in it, ABBA had been my sort of go-to, uh, anthems when I was growing up. And so uh, looking back on it, I had, I had a lot of hubris, but um, <clears throat> fortunately I was, I was proven right. But yeah, that, that movie proved that women in, you know, women can open movies to big box office numbers. There was also lots of discussion at the time around Meryl Streep and was she the right person to have in the role? I mean, as if anyone could ever question Meryl Streep. Um, and of course she was. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So, you know, we've made mm -hmm. other movies catering to the female audience, um, Girls Trip, which was a, a great success here in the US mostly. It grossed over a hundred million dollars, an African-American ensemble uh, cast of really brilliantly funny women. It launched T Tiffany Haddish's career. <clears throat> and another one where, you know, um, it, gosh, are people going to show up to see a movie like this, an R-rated raunchy movie about women going and having fun? Well, yes, of course, because it's about sisterhood. So <laughs> who's not going to love that? So, um, yeah. I can watch Bridesmaids over and over exactly. and over again. <laughs> That's another one. Yeah, that was another one. There was a lot, uh, 
written about at the time of us releasing Bridesmaids about how that really did shift the zeitgeist around uh, movies for women and about women. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we think about Hollywood, we don't exactly think about a place that's dominated, at least you know, at the, the high sort of decision-making levels by women. You obviously have broken through, but I can imagine, I mean, did you, you know, you said before you didn't really visualize yourself there, um, maybe initially, but has, is that starting to shift? Are you, you know, as, as people are starting to recognize, wow, women are such an important audience and, you know, women are actually quite strong leaders, particularly in crisis. We've seen that in the past year. Is that starting to change? I think that there is incremental improvements, um, you know, around diversity across the board, you know, in, in the sort of upper ranks of, of companies, but it's, it's not, it's not there yet for sure. I mean, you know, the, the, the Me Too and Time's Up movement did shift the conversation in a major way. There was a reckoning certainly inside of our industry um, with, uh, you know, the revelations about Harvey Weinstein and others. Mm. And what it's done that I'm, I'm really pleased to see is it, it has shifted the conversation and there's a, 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 an intolerance level or a lack of tolerance for certain behaviors now that wasn't around when I started out for sure. You know, there would be the, you know, the sort of roll your eyes and walk away and just go, God, well, that's just sort of what we have to put up with. And now, um, and I am just thrilled to say, particularly, you know, the sort of generation and generation behind me and generation behind, you know, two generations down, down the road, um, they are not having it at all and they are fierce and they are vocal and they look out for each other and they look out for themselves and you know the the sort of millennial workforce if you will they have a very different view of of um you know what they're going to put up with and and so i i think that's really encouraging and really heartening but you know look i think the work that we need to do is looking around the c-suite we just need more diversity there across the board and do you see um obviously as, as we as we were talking about before film has such an ability to to shift the way that that we as women see ourselves that that the world see women and girls and and quite frankly the way that people value women and girls how do you think about that um as as you're looking at the that the movies that you're putting out because obviously we know you know there, there have you know Historically, certainly, uh, you know, the entertainment industry has portrayed women in both positive and unfavorable ways, right? And I do see a shift in that. I certainly see you, you know, I certainly see your mark when I think about, you know, Pitch Perfect. And I think about, you know, all of these films that, that really did put women at the center and how you've championed so many women directors and their ideas. And often it had probably very much behind the scenes way, which, you know, I also think is, is really wonderful and telling about uh, the kind of leader that you are. But how, how do you think about um, the way that art does translate and film does translate in terms of the way that we value women? I, I think, again, to go back to, you know, recent movements, um, Me Too and, and Time's Up, 
has created much more awareness around what's okay and what's not, what's appropriate and what's not, and what our tolerance level is for certain things. You know, it's interesting during the pandemic, I've been going back and watching a bunch of movies from, you know, the 80s and the 90s, and the casualness with which, um, you know, sexism and racism uh, take take place in many of those movies um, in, 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 you know, at the time, a very good natured way, but you wouldn't get away with a lot of that today. So I, I think when you when you sort of look back in, in a historical way, it's actually quite easy to see that there, you know, there's, there's a shift and, and there is an evolution. Um, what we have the, the sort of the, the power to do, I think is certainly, you know, in an intentional way, we do hire women whenever we can. You know, we do look to create opportunities for women in front of the camera, behind the camera, certainly more and more. And those numbers are ticking up which is great to see more, more female directors uh, are, are working inside our industry today than ever before. Um, portrayals are of course really important. You know, I, I think even before uh, the, the movements, we were always very mindful when we're developing stories to, you know, make, to, to sort of minimize tokenism um, and, 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 you know, give, characters agency and, and empowerment, you know, and not just have somebody be a, a um, you know, a, a sort of an arm candy or something like that. Now, that's not to say that, you know, we don't have control over all of our filmmakers all the time, but, you know, where we can, it, you, it, really what you need to do is set the intention to do it, at, right? And then, and then it, it sort of bleeds across all the work that you're doing and every meeting that you're in and, you know, and then it goes to the other executives who are, you know, carrying that forward in the same way. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I want to pivot because I, I feel like there's, you know, the big fat elephant <laughs> between us, which is the fact that, you know, we've had this global pandemic, which has deeply impacted everything, you know, but I think the entertainment industry has really been, I don't want to say just hit hard. I mean, I feel like it's, and obviously, you know, better than anyone. I mean, it's just almost, you've had to like rethink everything. Um, and I just, I, I've been thinking about you so much in these, in these months and just how you are maneuvering to, to keep things, to keep things going. I mean, I, I remember the conversation that we had, um, you know, a number of months back where you were, you know, talking about the, that you were the first to, the first studio, as I understand it, to really get sort of back into production and how you were able to do that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how you made some of those decisions, which obviously have huge impact. Um, you know, obviously health concerns, security concerns, you know, and, and, and I'm obviously keeping the business afloat. 
Yeah, it, it's been a wild 10 months. <laughs> I'll tell you that, you know, the, the, the two main parts of our business are making movies and releasing movies in movie theaters. And, and both of those things are impaired <laughs> to say the least. So, um, you know, it, we, at the end of the year, we did have an opportunity to look back and take stock of everything that we did as an organization. And, you know, when I think back to last January, February, um, which does feel like an eternity ago. And it was becoming very clear that, you know, the virus was coming our way and, you know, we were gonna have to get tactical very quickly. Um, you know, we started with looking at our slate for 2020 and it just seems so quaint today to think about it. But at the time there was thinking around, oh, well, you know, it, everything will be back to normal in the summer. The virus is going to die with the hot weather and everything will be hunky-dory. <laughs> you know, I, I, cre I created a motto for ourselves, which was, you know, plan for the worst and hope for the best. And so at that time, the first thing I did was to pick up our big tentpole films. We had Fast and Furious and Minions scheduled to come out in 2020 and we moved them out of year into uh, 2021. And it was an unpopular decision at the time. The theater owners went crazy. Our competitors thought we were insane. I even had some people in my own organization who disagreed with me um, entirely. We'd already spent some marketing money on you know, both movies and done a big launch at the Super Bowl for Fast and Furious. So it was a big decision and it was kind of crazy. But now, of course, looking back on it was obvious. <laughs> but, um, you know, so... And then, and then the next order of business, of course, was getting everybody working remotely and setting the whole organization up. That's you know more than five thousand people globally. We have two animation studios, figuring out how people were going to continue their work on animation. And you know, you mentioned production. One of the things that we had shooting in the UK was Jurassic World. We were ten days into shooting, uh, you know, a hundred and twenty day shoot of, of that movie and you could imagine the size and scope and scale of it we were shooting at Pinewood and so you know one of the first sort of projects that we did was was to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves how would we get that movie back up and running into production in the midst of a pandemic and I'm going to be honest at the time we started it I did not think that we'd be successful I didn't think that we'd be shooting much before the fall and we ended up being the first Hollywood movie back into production in July. And we created a set of protocols working very closely, of course, with the labor unions and the, and the, um, and the guilds and with our production team there on the ground and with the British Film Institute. And we created a, a, a you know, a, a lengthy document that served as the basis of the safety protocols for production for the entire industry. Um, I'm incredibly proud of that work that our team did, um, my production team in particular. And, you know, we were able to, um, you know, go on behalf of the industry and, and talk through how it, how it would work, of course, with, you know, testing um, and contact tracing being at the heart and soul, you know, being the sort of cornerstones of, of that plan. And, you know, when we successfully uh, made that movie and we've wrapped and now it's you know being edited and there were a couple of other movies we were able to make now today um i'm a little bit more trepidatious about going into production so it's great that we've got these protocols in place 
there's a few things that we've got on the horizon, but, you know, just with, you know, with what's going on right now and until we have a better sense of, uh, you know, how the vaccine is going to be rolled out and, you know, how we can really protect people if, um, you know, if we're asking them to travel and so on is, is another thing. So that's another hurdle that we have to get over. But um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I could go on and on. There were many other things. We also had to really think about how we were going to monetize our films when people are not showing up to the movie theater. So that was another initiative that we, that we worked on and made a couple of historical deals with the, um, with the theater chains. Wow. And do you think that that what's happened over these last 10 months is going to have lasting impact in terms of the industry doing things differently? Or do you think things will go back to normal as soon as they can? No, I, I mean, I think everything is forever changed. Um, you know, I, I think there's a spectrum of some things will never be the same. They'll never look the same and other things will familiar, but they'll be, they'll be changed in, in some way. Um, you know, there were, there were trends going on in our industry before the pandemic with streaming, um, you know, becoming more and more ubiquitous. You can look at the strength of Netflix. You can look at the strength of Disney Plus. You can see another, you know, other companies following suit. So, you know, I think that's something that uh, is going to shift and, uh, and permanently in, in terms of consumer behavior. You know, I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of conjecture about movie theaters and will people go back to to make to seeing movies in a movie theater? You know, look in the in the mature markets like the US and parts of Europe where you know we you've got a hundred year tradition of people going to the movie theater they you know it, we may see it a, a sort of a steeper decline there but in many parts of the world and, and particularly in developing countries going to the movies and seeing American movies on a big screen is is an amazing uh, part of you know an entertainment um, lifestyle mm. and so I, I still firmly believe in the theatrical experience. I believe in movies, you know, in order to reach a, a you know a global audience and to and to sort of create that indelible um, mark on culture, they need to be movie theaters and they need to be marketed uh, to to audiences and um, and then a lot of people need to go and show up and see them. So I, I think that there's going to be a bit of a hybrid in terms of you know how movies get distributed and how quickly you get them in the home and so on and so forth. And maybe the types of movies that you want to go and see in a movie theater might mm. change. You know, it might it, it will probably you know as it was already trending be more the domain of the sort of the big movies, experiential movies, and sort of movies where you want community. Um, but, but the thing I'm excited about is, you know, content consumption is at an all time high. You know, it's not like people are saying we don't want to watch things. Uh, audiences, the audience is there, people want to watch good things. And, you know, we're going through something profound in, as, a, as a humanity, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so. So I think it it's going to create a lot of opportunity for storytelling and storytellers and uh, creative minds to come up with some pretty compelling stories. Mm. So Donna, in all of this, I mean, leadership is tested, right? And it's either you rise and you thrive or 
you know, you fall backwards, right? It is, it is so clear to me in everything I have seen, I have heard, I am hearing from you, that you've, you've risen to the occasion. You've made some, you know, you've innovated, um, but your leadership was tested. What, what did you learn about your leadership in this time? I think resilience is, is the word that comes to mind. You know, I, I, I mean, I know I, I'm, I am a person of fortitude. I, I have a, a strong backbone. Um, but as you said, you know, this, this pandemic has tested all of us, you know, in ways that we couldn't have imagined before. Um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about you know, myself, I've learned a lot about my organization. I, I couldn't be more proud of my team, uh, my senior leadership team. I couldn't be more proud of my company. Um, everybody stepped up, you know, everybody um, in the face of the pandemic, in the, in the, in the face of, um, you know, the social justi justice, in the face of political unrest, and, you know, just kept focused on the work. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think you said it earlier, the, the compassion piece of this was really important for me for day, from day one. Um, it was a very uh, instinct, instinctual thing that I just felt that, you know, whether it was through communication, outreach, um, however we were going to do it, we needed to keep very connected with our 5,000 employees around the world. And we needed to uh, let them know that we were here for them and, <clears throat> and also chart the course and create, uh, you know, a, a plan that everybody could um, understand and be a part of, um, you know, and, and, and make it very clear that, you know, getting the, this balance right between, you know, being optimistic on the one hand, but being realistic, you know, that that's something that I, I've, I've had to, you know, constantly um, manage to to figure out how to sort of get that right balance there, because, you know, you do want to be optimistic because you want people you want you need to inspire people, you know, to get up day after day after day, you know, with with so much uncertainty. Um, and on the other hand, you need to balance it with a good dose of reality. And, you know, one of the things I did learn early on to avoid was sort of going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, the movies that we moved, you know, into 2021 and beyond was just to have realistic time horizons, you know, and, and to be able to say, look, we don't know anything about, you know, we have so much uncertainty, but Let's just plan again, plan for the worst and hope for the best. But let's just plan on, you know, we're not going to be back to the office until X date or, you know, so not you. So we were you, to avoid giving people unrealistic expectations, I guess, and just help help manage those expectations and then provide support around that. And I think trusting your gut. Right. I mean, you 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 obviously had to trust that inner voice. And I'm sure you, it sounds like there were lots of other voices and sometimes opposing, but you did that. And I think that's such a, a mark of leadership. And you say is resilience and compassion, really critical. Donna, it's incredible with all your success, your great humility, truly, um, and how empowering you are of other people. So thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And we are just so blessed to have you as a board member and global ambassador and incredible supporter. So thank you 
we all are your big fans of Vital Voices. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you, Elise. This was really a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate the opportunity and um, my, uh, the opportunity you give me to work with Vital Voices and to, um, you know, be exposed to all these incredible women all around the world is it brings me great joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. So I, I really am very grateful to you for that. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. If you'd like to support our work with women leaders who use their power to empower others, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org, or you can text VITAL to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. See you next week.